if, if I could impart anything to your listeners, it's don't fear. Don't, don't fear the market. Yes, for the next 10 to 15 years, we could have a, a very difficult time. We could have a position where we're, we have negative returns or very low returns. Don't stress and worry about the future. One part of my story is that I had anxiety and stress about my work, uh, my line of work, many hours that I worked, and also just thinking about the future. As soon as I started to realize, hey, I have these goals and I want to save towards them, I started to get in a position where I didn't have a growth mindset. I, I got to a place where I hit a wall and I wasn't saying, hey, I can climb this wall or there's a way around this. And um, a big part of my ethos now is to ensure that I'm taking care of myself, that I'm putting my family first, I'm getting enough rest, I'm getting enough exercise, and that I'm always in a position where I can say, I can be smarter, I can learn this, I can achieve this, and I'm willing to do that and, and willing to invest in others. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 129. Jace, what's going on? How are you? Doing great, man. How you doing? Doing good, hanging in there. It's been really nice weather-wise out here, so it's been able we've been able to get outside a little bit. In Austin, you don't have to worry about that so much, but it stinks to be locked in all day and and not be able to get out. Yeah, totally. So, you've uh, you've even grown a mustache as part of this whole coronavirus, haven't you? I know. I was growing a little beard, and then I came out. I I, sh- I shaved everything off except the mustache as a joke, and I came out, and my wife screamed. <laughs> so oh, we'll did. see. I'm gonna I'm gonna shave it off here in the next couple of days. I don't love it, but it's fun. Yeah. What What else have you been doing in your routine? It's kind of been weird, right? I've noticed it in mine that your your routine kind of gets out of whack, and if you don't make a conscious effort to change it or update it or, or really be on top of it, things kind of get a little out of control a little bit. I kind of took this opportunity. Granted, we're you know I, I spend most of my time in in essential business. So for the most part, you know, I've, I've been having some sort of a normal routine or normalized routine, but there's definitely been some things that have changed and especially with kids and my wife and, you know, where our kids go, nanny and on and, and daycare or whatever and all that. So a couple things I've done, I decided to, to do a 30 day experiment uh, while, while Corona's, or I guess when it started up until now, and we'll, I'll probably continue here for another week and just see what the results are. One thing I've just been taking cold showers. I've always, you know, I had tons of friends that have experimented with it, shocking the body and doing all these different things. And at first it was super annoying, especially because I just built this this new place and I put in this like dream type shower that I have that, that's got a couple different shower heads and stuff. And so I've just loved my nice warm showers. I decided I was going to cut it all and I was going to take cold showers. So I started <laughs> doing that. And it's kind of fun. I mean, it's, it's definitely like last night I got done with, I, I went and did a bike ride with my family and then my wife wanted to work out and I was going to lift. So I lifted. My son was just having a cow. So I took him with me and then he kept crying. So like, oh, I'm just going to take him on a run. And last night it was really hot in Austin. So I get back from the run. I'm taking this cold shower and it's like, I'm like, man, do I really want to continue this? Because <laughs> even though it was hot, that cold shower, it's just cold for a long time and the shower doesn't last very long. <laughs> so that's one thing. And then I've done a bunch of other things. I think I might write a post on LinkedIn about it. Just just try to keep things different and fresh. I don't know. 
So what what are the best books? One book that comes to mind is Atomic Habits, right? In the sense of like building a system or building a routine, right? In in mattering principles by Ray Dalio would would kind of talk about like building a system or building habits for success, right? And not being not falling outside of your system. Are there any other books that come to mind? Those are the two best that I've definitely read of recent. I mean, I can't think of any others that it, that I really, really like. There's a couple other books on habits and stuff, but in terms of like things that I resonated the best with, the, those two, and I think you and I have had several conversations about those two books. Those are definitely probably the top of my list. Yeah, yeah. So that's Atomic Habits I still need to read, but I know you just finished it and really liked it. Yeah. Anyway, we appreciate everybody tuning in, uh, especially this at this time when people aren't commuting, or commuting and, and traveling around. So thanks for listening. And if you if you enjoy the show, we appreciate you leaving a, a review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to. It, it helps us grow the show and reach new millionaire interviewees. Uh, one recent review that I just want to read says, Outstanding resource for all. What a great idea for a podcast. I'm glad I missed the first two or three years because it means I have a huge archive to enjoy. The guys are good interviewers and the millionaires are all credible and well-spoken. So thanks for leaving that interview. And of course, we're, th- we're thankful to our millionaires and all of our guests who come on the show because it's it's really about them and their stories and everything that they want to share and they're owed the the really the, the glory of the show because it's it's because of them that we're able to do this. So thanks for everybody that has come on. If you're interested in coming on as either a millionaire or one who's close to reaching a millionaire, as we'd like to kind of highlight those stories like we will in today's episode, feel free to send us our email. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. So as mentioned, we have an interview today with someone who has a net worth of about 700000 It's with Michael. He works as a data scientist. We discuss his early start, his investment allocation, and the steps he's taken to become a millionaire or really, or nearly become rather a millionaire at a very young age. We also discuss his career progression and the calculated risks that he's taken. So Michael's really on top of it and will be a millionaire obviously shortly here in the next couple or a few years. So really good interview with him to kind of see what he's doing now. Last week, we had a great interview with Jason, high net worth individual. He had a net worth of about $12 million. He was invested primarily in real estate with a focus on single family assets. He talked about his first deals, finding the right land to building value ratio, which is kind of a unique insight that I personally haven't thought of and, and really heard before. So props to him there. And and also when and how to self-manage any of your rentals. So really good interview with, with Jason. He's 12 million today. We've got somebody worth 700. So kind of the opposite ends of the spectrum, but hoping we can connect with different people. And obviously they both have unique insights and strategies to share. So thanks again to everybody for, for listening to the podcast. And without any further delay, please help me welcome Michael to the show. Michael, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now? Hey, pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, I'm on the West Coast. I live in a large metropolitan area. I'm a cybersecurity expert and was mostly raised in this area and just working towards our, our goals. I'm not as <laughs> I'm not quite a millionaire yet. I'm not one of the, the millionaires that's being unveiled today, but hopefully uh, your listeners can learn from my story. Yeah, totally. I mean, you're definitely well on your way and and, and we'll get into that uh, allocation and stuff too. And, you know, we've had a lot of listeners write in. They like to hear some of these stories of people kind of on the journey versus those that have that have actually kind of eclipsed that. Right. But you're pretty close. And what's your net worth today? Sure. Yeah. So without our personal items and cars, we're almost $700,000. And most of that is uh, in index funds, uh, so yeah, we can get into my allocation if you'd like. Yeah, yeah. Let's dive right into that. Is that retirement accounts, post-tax? What's kind of the, the makeup there of the allocation? 
Yeah, starting off, um, we opened IRAs. Um, I'm married, and so we got married uh, a year out of undergrad. And so we both opened up Roth IRAs. And we started that during a period when the market was quite low. Uh, so that was about 10 years ago. And so a lot of our money is in Roth, but over over time, uh, more recently, we've been maxing out 401ks. So we have some pre-tax money there and we also have a taxable brokerage. So in terms of the split, I would say 50% of our money in terms of our investment accounts is in a Roth, which is um, kind of nice in terms of the our tax, tax bracket was lower back then too. So hopefully that's good. Um, and then in terms of uh, pre-tax and taxable, I think 30% of it's in pre-tax and then the rest of it is in taxable. And amongst those accounts, are you mainly in VTSAX or what kind are splattered amongst multiple index funds? What's kind of the breakup there between each of the accounts in terms of the index funds? Yeah, that has evolved over time. And that does kind of get into the question of who I've been influenced by more recently. I am a Boglehead and I'm very influenced by JL Collins. And I've read the um, the Simple Path to Wealth and, and, and some other blogs that are related to that network. And so more recently, I'm in a mostly equities. So about 85% equities uh, of the equity portion. I'm 90% in VTSAX and the rest in the international total index. Uh, I could see myself over the next couple of years moving more into uh, the international, but we can talk about that. And then the rest is in uh, bonds and then there's some cash too. But but mostly it's a, almost a 90-10 split between equ- equities and bonds. And you said that it wasn't always like that. So how did how did it start? And then kind of how did you kind of evolve that over the last decade? Yeah, sure. When I, I was fortunate enough, at least within my undergrad, as well as having a relative, uh, it was my grandfather, who said, hey, I'm a Vanguard client and you're going to graduate and it's not going to feel like you're making much money. You're going to have your student loans, but you need to open a Roth IRA. You need to max that out every year. And at that time, I think it was like, 4,500 a year or something like that. And 5,000. And so he said, you got to max that out. So um, we've been doing that since the beginning. That's how it started. The fund that I actually was investing in during that time was a a target date fund, which is obviously uh, very common these days in uh, 401ks or or whatever else. And thankfully, it was a pretty low expense ratio, kept me mostly in the same uh, actually allocation that I have now, 90-10 in terms of equities and bonds. So that's how it started. And Unfortunately, at that time, um, uh, we can get into more of my history, but, but I was working at a startup when I when I first graduated, and so we didn't actually have a 401k, and so I didn't have that or a match. So we 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 did that on my wife's side, but not mine. Interesting. So you've got this allocation that's a little bit involved over the time, and you haven't gone into real estate or personal residence or anything like that in terms of your allocation yet either. Yeah, that is part of our journey. Um, uh, a few years after being married, we did buy a house at a very good time. And so um, some of our equity that is in our taxable brokerage account was from the sale of that home. So we essentially flipped a home. We, we bought it. We put 20% down. This is actually an interesting story. I mean, we, so we graduated. Um, uh, just to give your listeners a financial picture. So we both graduated undergrad in two good fields. We both got jobs um, right away, and that was tough to do during a recession. Um, again, my, my, my role was a little bit of a startup, so my wife was making a little more than me, but mine grew pretty quickly. Um, and so, but we both graduated from private schools, had decent scholarships, but we had, I had 150K of student loans 
And thankfully, my wife's parents were extremely generous. They paid a lot of her school, but she did have a few loans that she had to work out, but it was uh, less than 10% of what I had. And so we thought, you know, we really need to pay off our student loans before we buy a house. Over the next three to four years, we rented an apartment. At that time, it was in a large, it's in the large metropolitan area here. And we were renting a one bedroom for $600 a month. And it was walking distance to a couple of places where we could get happy hour. But to be honest, thankfully, we just got the bug to, to pay off our student loans. And those habits really have propelled us forward into the future. And I remember not really having to budget or, uh, or cut corners that much, but we both drive two old Japanese cars that are reliable. Our vacations were mostly car camping or climbing or backpacking with friends and dates were, hey, let's go to happy hour at that local spot and walk and spend, you know, 40 bucks and that gets you like a pizza and a few drinks and you can look at each other or whatever. And it was great. I, I just look back really fondly on those times, really active lifestyle. But we were we were able to put like 70% of our money towards these student loans, if not more. And so I look back and look at what the market's done since you know 2009 and go, well, come on, my my student loan interest rate was oh, it's like seven or eight percent, and some of that's kind of nasty, right? But and at the same time, I wish I'd put a little <laughs> bit more away in the investments. So, but just it's pretty amazing listening to you speak, Michael. Because if you just take a step back, right, you can share your age if you want to. But just from talking to you before, I know you're a pretty young guy, and I assume your wife yeah. is is around the, the same age, right? Yeah, so, we're both around age thirty. Yeah. So if you're age 30, let's call it, and you have a net worth of around 700 now, right? And you guys paid off 150, you could, if you didn't have the 150, you'd be a millionaire probably, well, right? With the growth in the market. Oh, hey, don't, hey, hey I'm, not, stop, I'm not saying don't, that to rub no. it in. I'm just saying, I'm just saying at, at 750, right? You have a, a tremendously high net worth. And that's after having paid off $150,000 in student loans. It's it's really amazing. And not well, being a doctor, right? Or a lawyer. Right, right. Well, yeah. And, and I can be ex- explicit about what our incomes were when we graduated. But yeah, don't get me, don't get me thinking about how the S&P 500 is up more than 400% <laughs> since 2009. Don't sorry, stop sorry, it. Um, but yeah, so when we graduated, tough time to graduate. It was the recession. My wife was going into a field that's more science related that... Is it was still hot and stable during that time in our area, and so she got a job, and uh, she was making about sixty k a year, and that's including all of her compensation before tax. And I was making about forty six k a year, and so you know, with about a hundred, we could call it a hundred k. You know, to uh, we got married a year after undergrad, so a couple of young twenties kids, right, getting married and in love and you know it's like you don't need and that's this is one of the big takeaways for your listeners especially for your younger audience you don't need much to be happy what made us happy was our friends uh being around our family uh going on trips which really like yeah we went to europe every year we would we'd backpack or, or whatever but we were able to keep costs really low we i wasn't into the travel rewards points or anything like that yet but honestly with miles and other things we were able to go to Maui or Europe and car camping and all the things we wanted to do and live on probably 35 to 45k a year I tried to go back and look at you know actual numbers of what we spent but I'm pretty confident that we were able to put 60 to 70 percent of our money towards our student loans and then that's after populating about a five thousand dollar emergency fund so how long in total did it, if, if you're making about 100, you're spending 35 to 40, how long did it take you to pay off the 150? 
Um, just, just shy of four and a half years, maybe just about, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a milestone. And, and like I said, do you need to pay those off right away? You know, you're, you're going to have a lot of high income professionals listening on your show who are going to come out with debt, whether they're physicians, whether they're uh, been to grad school for computer science or whatever it is, MBAs. And I, I look at it as my philosophy and our philosophy, we didn't want any debt. We didn't, that felt like, an anchor uh, around our neck. And, and so we just crushed it. Wow. Wow. Good for you guys. Seriously. What a, what an impressive story. And so you guys were on board together with this from the get go. Your wife was on board. You were on board. Did, did she drive you? Did you drive her? It's a good question. I think naturally, you know, even, even going back just a little bit, um, my dad was laid off when I was a kid and I was in a little bit of a formative age. I was age 12. And I just remember realizing that, oh, We've got bills, and but money's not coming in, and I'm the oldest son in my family, and so I was just kind of that really hit me hard. And I remember thinking about things that most kids don't think about, like oh, I really need to like turn the lights off when I leave the room, and I really need to like make sure that you know I'm not eating too much or whatever. And and it wasn't like that. We we're from a nice area. My my dad always had a good job, but that really set him back to be in his like late 40s or whatever he was, and get laid off, and he was laid off for a year and a half. And that really started me on a journey in my four formative years of going, wait a second, if we're going to survive, we need money coming in. And that started me a little bit on an entrepreneurial track. I started a, a landscaping company, which I actually had a, 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 com- a company that was listed in terms of a local business. And I would walk my lawnmower around until I was old enough to get a little beater truck and, and all these kinds of you know small business, you know, uh, leaf blowing, all that stuff. And I remember being 16 years old and having like $10,000 and my, my, my family was just, you know, uh, what do you, how do you have that much money? And I ended up spending a lot of that on my education and some for our wedding and things like that. And don't get me started with how I wish I had with that. And me wanting to live a life that uh, is on my terms and, and knowing that uncertain things can happen and things, things can happen with relationships and jobs and whatever else. And I knew that Hey, if I build the skills, if I build the connections, if I go out there, I can make this happen. And so I wanted to find a partner. I wanted to find a wife who was in that same vein. And so thankfully, you know, through school and things like that, I, I met my wife and and we thankfully we were we align on all the major things like, you know, religion and finance and whatever else, and children. And so uh, I, I think that's really important when you're finding a partner to to be aligned on those things, to have the communication lines. And yeah, thankfully my wife is just a She's a genius at saving money, and she. We both are quality people. But spend three hundred bucks on the nice outdoor research jacket that has an unlimited warranty. Do it; it'll last you ten years. Don't buy the whatever else <laughs> one that, that you're gonna have to replace every two years. And so we buy quality, but we don't have to buy often. Wow, yeah, good advice. So let's just jump forward here, full, full picture. So we, we we know where you are, right around age thirty, net worth around seven hundred, paid off one hundred and fifty in debt. What's your guys' is do you have a financial goal? Do you want to retire early or are you just kind of taking this year by year? What any goals for the future? It's a little bit of both. And honestly, we'll get into this more, but plans are just plans and anything can happen. But yes, we do have goals. Currently, we are on track if we continue to say right. So fast forward in terms of our our income and things like that. My income grew a little faster than my wife's in terms of just by the nature of my field that I'm in. 
And so now our, our annual income together, uh, my wife now hardly works. Uh, she still is employed, but she just works very minimally. And so we have uh, a few children. So uh, she stays home with them. And so uh, I'm now in a position where I'm making around 170 and she makes about 10K. So we make about 180K per year, which sounds like a lot of money, but I'll be honest in the area I live in, that's, uh, that, that's, I, I'm not going to throw out the word middle-class. That's not the right thing. Cause obviously it's a lot higher than a lot of people across the nation, but in our area that I think you get low income subsidies, uh, if you make less than $96,000 per year, I believe. So, um, we do make more than that. So we're able to save about half of our income per year. So with that velocity, our goals are to, by age 40 to 45, be in a position where we're financially independent. I may end up you know, getting director or VP role within a Fortune 500 company or whatever else and want to continue on that track. That's, that's great. But I might want to try something else and move towards a, a different adventure. Sure. So let's talk career advice because I think that probably applies to people that that can connect with you, right? Right. Versus maybe someone that was a doctor and making five hundred and they feel like they can't quite connect to. So you started you started at forty five. Now you're at about one seventy, you say, and it's been I don't know what age you started. I would assume twenty two, twenty three. Right. You're now so thirty. About, let's about call it an eight and a half year career so far, right? Yeah, eight and a half year career, and you've increased your income one hundred thirty five thousand. So what? Maybe just as you think about that, what's some of the advice you could offer somebody on how you've been able to manage your career? It's a good question. I uh, one thing that's uh, been important to me is to have a growth mindset. Uh, when having a growth mindset is compassion and mentoring and bringing others up who um, are are. Uh, many people invested in me when I was younger. So giving back in that sense is an important uh, part of my ethos. And so in terms of career advice, you can make... So here's the thing. Here's the wonderful thing. You can do whatever you want. You can be a doctor. You can start your own plumbing business. I mean, you could just listen to the various episodes of your podcast and realize there's a lot of different ways people make money. But if you if you look, there's a thread that goes across a lot of these folks. And the number one thing in terms of career advice that I give is who you know really matters and continue to learn and develop your skills. They're saying now, at least in the field that I'm in, uh, which is a very hot field right now, your skills are going almost obsolete from a technical perspective every two years. And that doesn't sound like a long time, but it just means that there's constant learning. So I began my career in in a consulting firm. The nice thing about that is a lot of different clients I get to see, a lot of different engagements, different uh, industries, different practices, um, exposure to different frameworks. During those times, uh, during that time, my firm sponsored uh, continued development, but then that just became a habit. And so I have four or five different certifications that are very well known and recognized in the field that I'm in. And, and that just allowed me to get in the get in the door in terms of the client work. But then I realized that I'm picking up all these different skills and um, so I think constant learning, the ability to know what you want and how to communicate that, negotiation skills, business acumen. Uh, there are many different ways that we could go in terms of a career discussion, but being clear with yourself about what you're good at and what you're not good at and working on those strengths right away. If you're in a technical role, but you should be in sales, figure that out early if you can. Um, for my kids, I'm going to say, hey... <laughs> I'd love to pay for college if that still exists 20 years from now, obviously, or whatever. But um, but it, it's going to have to be focused on STEM or something that's going to get you a job. Um, sorry, I'm not going to pay for your history degree. Um, 
but I have many friends who, who went up through high school, didn't college wasn't for them, but they still had technical chops and now they work at Google, right? It's like, okay. No, I think, I think that's a great point, right? Like we're, we're kind of at this really interesting time in our work history, I guess, if you will, especially in this country, right? Like things are becoming more remote. Technology is enabling us to be able to work more efficiently and effectively. We've got artificial intelligence and all the changes that that might bring to the workplace that, you know, a dozen of the, or I don't know what the percentage is, but a significantly high percentage of the jobs that exist today did not even exist 10 years ago, right? So it's hard to predict like what kind of, you know, what those jobs might be and, and, you know, whether or not the tradition is going to be to go to college or not. I mean, you have a lot of these CEOs of these big companies saying, hey, look, like it's not a requirement for us anymore. You right. know, quite frankly, we care more about their skill set than we do about whether or not they got the skill set in college, to be honest. Right. You know, so it, it, it kind of creates an interesting thing. And maybe I'd you kind of bring up that you got to have kids and you're, you're saying, hey, I mean, I'll pay for college if you're going to do STEM. How are you kind of planning financially for college? Are you putting money away for them in a 529? Or are you saying, hey, I'm going to do something different just in case they don't go to a traditional school? Yeah, we. good question. We do have two, uh, We have a few 529s and they have about $1,000 each in them. That's not included in my, my whole net worth. I just, I'm on the fence about it because I see the current, so uh, career advice, network, it really is everything. If you can get into a top 10 business school, if you can go to a top 10 computer science school, you have a better probability of getting hired into the large companies, specifically the large tech companies, machine learning, artificial intelligence, robotics, whatever it is you're, you're potentially able to do from an academic perspective, get into a top 10 school. If you can be an in-state resident, keep the costs of your education low, but live and be in that area because you're going to build connections. And those connections are going to allow you to expand in your career. The people that I've known and the relationships I've had are a big reason of where I am because I didn't go to a big name school. I don't uh, necessarily start my career with a, a big name on my resume, but still knowing what the skills that I need to um, move into, talking to those people who are in those roles, and just being able to focus on teamwork, leadership, organization, being consistent every day. Those are the things that, um, especially in the first five to 10 years of your career, besides those technical skills that you should be focusing on. I think that's, that's great advice. And and I think Clark and Clark would agree that, you know, they always say, I think Jim Rohn says your network is your net worth. But, you know, I found that to be significantly true. Everything, you know, Clark and I were having a discussion the other day that literally every single step we've taken has been basically, you know, at, at, due to our network, more or less. Right. And the people we've met and and the opportunities have come along because of that. You know, it's interesting right. you kind of bring up that that you are, you know are divided on what to do with the the five twenty nine. I kind of recently made a decision to, and I've got an old ESA account for our daughter that I, mm-hmm. you know, basically gifted her the money and let her put it in there, kind of thing, because of the income limits and whatnot. But I've decided I'm turning that thing off just in case my kids don't decide to go to college or, or whatever right. else, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of do it in a different way and, you know, get them working in one of my businesses and, and, and right. have them essentially contribute to their own Roth. And that way, if they ever right. take it out of there, you know, they can take those contributions out for school and we'll figure something else out if, if it's not enough kind right. of deal. But so right. we've had a little discussion on, on kind of where, where you go from here. I'm curious to know, 
when you kind of started this journey, did you kind of have an end goal in mind of, of retiring early or hitting a certain benchmark net worth wise when you started? I did not realize until about a few years ago, hey, wait a second, with the habits we've created, with living below our means, investing in our careers and being able to increase our earnings, okay, in our 40s, more likely than not, even with meager returns, we can probably be financially independent. But in the first stages of my career, I was mostly just enjoying life, enjoying uh, my relationship with my wife, enjoying my friends. And thankfully, those habits were just in place. And, um, but I didn't, I didn't t- realize until I think I, I started reading the Boglehead blog, um, about a few years ago and, and really starting to go, okay. So, and I, and so another piece of my story is after the target date fund, um, when I was able, had more access to 401k with my wife's 401k, I just put it in the S and P 500. That ended up being like a, a sweet deal for us because we had access to the institutional shares. So super low cost. It's been great returns. But the last few years, even though I'd love to just be a pure VTSAX or S&P 500, we moved to a place where we wanted a little bit more diversification. And so we're in a position where I think I'll move into more international funds over the next couple of years, just to maybe about 20% of my equities would be in that. Hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, it's it's we all, we often ask that question, right? If people are going to reconsider allocating their portfolio, or if they are currently allocating it and it's mixed, right? A lot of right. a lot of a lot of people say, no, I've kind of chosen this and this is what I'm going to do. Or a lot of people say, right. well, I'm gonna, I'm going to keep it this way until I'm 70 or 65, right? And then I'll think right. about rebalancing or, or redistributing. But right. but as you think about your future here and and maybe your career path, and if you want to do something else in your career. Do you think about inflation and, and future returns and tax situations and, and, and these sort of things? Are, they, are these things that you're thinking about or are you just kind of thinking more on a year-by-year basis as you get closer to making a transition? Well, yeah, I studied economics um, in my undergrad. And so I do. I was influenced by some folks on the West Coast who have a specific mindset in terms of their political and economic makeup, but I was able to study some of the history of that. And so I understand interest rates and I understand inflation and deflation and those major economic milestones that we've had as a country. Yeah, I definitely think about that. I think about what are those scenarios um, that could potentially go really sideways. And it's a real, it's a, it's a measure for 10 times before I cut loose from anything that I've got going now. I think if I was just to speak a little bit freely, we're in a position in our country where we are talking about a lot of immigration. We're talking a lot about various things that I, I'm not going to make any stance on those, but there is truth that birth rates are going down. University educations are becoming less valuable and they cost more. Uh, we do have a shortage, at least from my purview in the in the technical uh, field that I'm in. And, and um, we have a shortage of the type of people that we need. We've got baby boomers who are um, getting older. They are going to be selling their you know, expensive homes or moving into assisted living or staying there or transitioning to their next phase of life. And who, when they retire, who's going to step up and be the next leadership in a lot of these uh, small, mid-sized and large companies. And so um, do, is there a baton to pass off the business? That's one thing that I love about what you just said. I would love to have a legacy business or a family business that I could pass on to one of my children. 
that what that's a beautiful thing when you can keep wealth and preservation and and keep that in the family. I think that that's been done in our country really well. But let's be honest, we're in a position where where we have had a lot of growth in the market. There are a lot of different interesting economic factors that people analyze in different ways, and I'm trying to get ourselves to a position where we would be able to have a withdrawal rate that's below three percent. That's what we're comfortable with. But one thing, at least in terms of our goals, you know, equities are you know the quote unquote riskier than bonds. Some people say, hey, when I win, when I when I make it, when I've got my my cool three million or my five million or whatever else. I'm going to transition a lot of it, half of it or whatever else into stable income because they've won. That totally makes sense. And I get that, but I'm looking to transition if my health allows and everything else to transition to something that does still make some money and does also still provide my family with medical benefits. So if I'm able to mostly still live off that and I have a a backup with my uh, portfolio, I'm I'm okay riding uh, the volatility of the equities because I still believe that those internationally and locally will have the highest returns in the long term. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, right? And and as you shared kind of that piece about immigration and politics and where we're going to go in the future, it just reminded me. I read an article the other week that that said about 20% of the homes in the I think it was 15 15 to 20 percent. I can't quite remember 15. I think. A percent of the homes in the next 20 years are going to be sold at some point because right. of, of the death of baby boomers. Exactly. Right? And so one of the questions is, A, is there going to be an oversupply of single family housing? And then B, in a lot of these places that the baby boomers are living, right, they're saying that are that are so rural, right? They're saying, hey, right. maybe maybe some of these millennials and younger aren't going to want to purchase those homes. Right. And so and so what's going to happen? So just yeah, interesting to think about, you know, as people did for the time that we're in now. Right. They're speculated 50 right. years ago where we're going to be. But just things to consider in, in financial right. planning. So along more that quick note, thing, yeah, more yeah. quick thing, if you don't mind um, on that. my So my wife and I, after we had uh, paid off our student loans after about five years, uh, you know, we, we got rid of that 150 K. We, we clinked a little wine glass and that was just a wonderful moment. And we continued those habits and we started to save up for a down payment on a home. We lived in an area or we, we live in an area where our savings rate was incredible, right? Remember 70, 60% of our income. That was not as fast as houses in terms of their prices were growing. So we thought, hey, you know, all right, now that we've crushed this debt, let's lift our head up a little bit. Where do we want to live? Like, you know, kids and all that. Like, are we going to do that? And and what's next? We started to look at the neighborhoods we wanted to live in, and we said, "Yep, that's where we want to live." So we said, "Okay, over the next year and a half, two years, let's save up twenty percent down on a house. Sounds reasonable." Well, we're priced out of that neighborhood. Six months later, we go, "Okay, well, we were ten percent down so far." Oh, look at the neighborhood. We can't live there. So let's go a little bit outside and a little bit outside. And next thing you know, two years is down the line. We've saved down our 20% on the house that we wanted to, which was in our budget. And we're out of the area that we wanted to be in. And so so we ended up buying a home in a great suburb, uh, not too far. It was 25, 30 minutes to work. Still very blessed. Awesome. And it grew. It doubled. And so the exact thing you said in terms of a lot of houses going to be on the market, a softening. I'm not going to try to time the market. I don't think that's wise. If people want to buy a home or rent a home, it's it's a lifestyle choice in my opinion. Actually, yeah. um, Big Earn has, has done some analysis on 
you know, equity returns versus real estate, single family home returns. And for our lifestyle, it just worked for us to cash in on the house that we had. We were able to sell it, um, put that equ- put the equity that we had gotten out of that, the sales, the proceeds. We were able to put a lot of that into VTSAX. That just works for us. And could VTSAX crash tomorrow and that been a, like a really poor decision? Well, in the short term, but long term, that's just working for us. So are you guys, you may have said this in the beginning and maybe I missed it. Are you guys renting now or did you purchase a different home? That's right. So in terms of our lifestyle, we just, we're trying to get to a place where when we make decisions, it's really what's the ideal scenario. Oftentimes we make decisions in this box that we live and we think, okay, well, what's the decision that works within this current framework we're thinking? My wife and I looked at each other and just went, what is really, really ideal? Well, living like a few minutes from work. Uh, but works like in an expensive area. We start looking, and in terms of the the math that works for our, our budget and how the market is where I live, in a in a relatively high cost of living area, it's actually you can rent a million dollar home for about thirty two hundred dollars a month. And our mortgage on our previous place was twenty five hundred dollars a month. So, and we were we had to put maintenance into that. You know, I'm I'm outside mowing the lawn every weekend, right? Like, there's all these things to think about. So. Uh, yeah, there are more expensive houses to rent, but currently we do rent. And currently it's it's actually smoothing the ride in terms of our finances. And we have, you know, uh, we're, you know, 30 something year old kids living in a million dollar home. So it's not too bad. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to jump back to financial planning here and then we'll wrap up. Sure. What, what tools or resources or books have you used or found helpful for, for your journey or what, what hasn't worked for you or what do you recommend for others? I think that, unfortunately, uh, the education in our country uh, across the board doesn't provide the the basic tools that I think that need to be in the tool belt of every person, and th- that can vary across what you what you think. But for my kids and and for what I want, I want them to be able to understand what they're spending, what they make, all of those types of things. So I use a couple of different tools. I use a spreadsheet a lot for just tracking some things. It's probably not the most robust or the most uh, efficient, but it works for me. Uh, like I said before, I've read a few different resources that are online. Mostly the Bogleheads blog and the uh, Simple Path to Wealth is a good place to start, but there's even more information out there. I use personal capital for tracking my net worth, and it's been pretty good in terms of that and also understanding my the expenses that for my various funds that I have and, and having just a good, clear picture. But yeah, I, I would say if, if I could impart anything to your listeners, it's don't fear. Don't, don't fear the market. Yes, for the next 10 to 15 years, we could have a, a very difficult time. We could have a position where we're, um, we have negative returns or very low returns. Don't stress and worry about the future. One part of my story is that I had anxiety and stress about my work, uh, my line of work, many hours that I worked, and also just thinking about the future as soon as I started to realize, hey, I have these goals and I want to save towards them. I started to get in a position where I didn't have a growth mindset. I I got to a place where I hit a wall and I wasn't saying, hey, I can climb this wall or there's a way around this. And um, a big part of my ethos now is to ensure that I'm taking care of myself, that I'm putting my family first, I'm getting enough rest, I'm getting enough exercise, and that I'm always in a position where I can say, I can be smarter, I can learn this, I can achieve this, and I'm willing to do that and, and willing to invest in others. I think... Uh, generosity is a big, big part of our life too, and so uh, I over 
over the time when we were um, having the high savings rate and all that, we still were giving to our church. We we're still giving to uh, adoption for a family member who wanted to adopt a child. And so, you know, learning, caring, growing, investing in others, those relationships are what's most important. It doesn't matter if you have, you know, 500K or 50K or 50 million. You know, if you're able to look into your account and that's where you're finding your your value, then I think you're getting something wrong. And yeah, I just want, I, I would want your reader, I would want your listeners to know that, um, that this, this journey, don't be dif- discouraged if you're only saving 20% of your income or if you're starting with less than that. Yeah, really great advice. And 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 just I want to follow up on something you hit on, on on helping other people, right? Whether that's tithing in a church or helping somebody who like you just mentioned adoption or other situations, right? As 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 and we and we talk about this a couple of times on the show, when one's net worth increases, mm-hmm. I think people find it challenging, or at least they've told us they find it challenging to decide A, who to help, right? And and then B, yeah. how much how much to give. So right. how have how have you and your wife found that balance? Are there certain causes maybe that you prefer or are closer to you? How do you kind of determine who to help and how much to give? For us, we believe that um, that nonprofits in general have a lot of overhead. And I don't want to say that in a, one of your listeners work for one and, and that offend them. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I do think that there's a lot of bloat in them and you don't necessarily know where your dollars are going. So just like Buffett says, hey, if you're going to invest in something, understand that business, understand what you're investing in. We want to see our dollars and we want to see that in our life. We want to see that in our community. So if we put dollars towards that, we want to be able to see the benefits and value, not in a way where, you know, we want to get all the credit or anything, but you know, if um, I think helping family, we do have family that is uh, in low income areas. We, we do. And we're willing to, uh, when we have been able to bless them in ways that, encourages specific behavior without seeming like controlling weird aunts and uncles or whatever else and and giving them a book or giving them something that hey you the way you propel yourself forward is learning and growth and and building sk- skills and tool sets and so we do give quite a bit of our money away and that could help us get to five sooner i think maybe we give 15 to 20 percent of our money away uh, a lot of that goes to our church or to missionaries or other things. That's just our own personal values and also the things that we want to support. But yeah, I mean, being able to be generous with the people in front of you and not enable behaviors, not enable people to um, be slack. But my kids know that if they work hard, if they if they have a, if if they have a mindset that says, "Hey, I'm going to get my hands dirty," and even if I fall down as I'm running towards this. If, if they're pursuing their goals, they know that I'll always have their back. So just a couple quick questions here to wrap up. I'm, I'm going to skip some of these generic rapid fire questions that we normally do, sure. but there are there are a couple that I, I want to ask you. Have you ever used sure. a financial advisor? I have not. Okay. And then how much do you spend a year annually household spending? Uh, that's around between 65 and 75K. So we're able to save about half of our income. Okay. And then what's worth the money on? What's worth money to you? Is there something I, I think you noted earlier buying something nice, right? And then not buying it again? Is right. that what you'd say? Right. It totally depends on the item. I would love to have a new Audi or, you know, I like cars, but I, I have an old Subaru and, and it works well. It's reliable. So I try to keep those main things like housing costs, cars, health, you know, clothing, food. I try to keep those at a minimum, but at the same time, we all have to wear clothes and eat food. And so it's important to put 
good things into your body. I think it's okay and good to wear nice clothes, but there are ways and there are sales. There are nice secondhand shops in terms of where I live. There's a lot of people who went, Hey, I don't want this nice item anymore. And they put it out on offer up or whatever else. There are ways to have a nice lifestyle and have nice things without giving into the consumer mindset and the consumer culture. We we have a nice iPad. We have a couple things, but honestly, we've got like older generation iPhones. We're not pursuing the latest tech. And yeah, okay. Once we have two, three, four or 5 million or whatever we get to, okay, we can live a little, we can buy new iPhones for our family. We can go to Italy on a nice trip or whatever. But right now it's just more about what values this, this item giving me. I want a nice toothbrush. I want a nice pillow to sleep on. We have a nice mattress. I don't need to have expensive carpet. I don't have to have the best lawnmower. I don't need to have the latest tech. So it just depends. Do you have one car? Or do you share and share? Do you have two cars between y'all? We do have, we do have two cars. Okay. Yep. So is there something down the road that you really want to splurge on that's kind of out there? Or? <laughs> Talk to my wife. She wants, she's, she's the spender, man. She wants you know, to get <laughs> We better get not her let nails. her hear that. Yeah. She's going to get her nails done. She's going to get her massages. She's going to have nice uh, stuff from Nordstrom and all that. Yep. But yeah, I mean, what are you gonna have? What are you gonna do? Some, what are you gonna buy? Well, I'll probably have some out. I'll probably have some outdoorsy type things. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Some things I can talk about on the show. Some things I can't. But yeah, you know, climbing stuff and uh, camping and cool. Uh, yeah, I like tech. I mean, I'm in that. Yeah, I'm in that field. So I like I like that if I can afford it. Totally. So Michael, to wrap up, what what kind of advice would you give to somebody who's just starting out their financial journey? I would say be consistent. Start with something, realize that whether you make 25K or whether you make 250K, it's possible to live below your means. The lower our incomes, obviously it is harder. It's easy to listen to a 30-year-old uh, with uh, making making 180K go, yeah, okay, well, that was easy. Well, honestly, it wasn't even 10 years ago that I was making less than the median income. I was making you know 40-something K. And I learned the skills. I I invested in others and a lot of people mentored me and gave me the skills to be able to give back to others. And ultimately, you put one foot in front of the other, you're going to be in a position where you're out of debt, you have, uh, the, you're in a position to focus on the things that you want and whatever that is, your relationships, whoever's in your life who you love, those people who are in front of you, don't, don't stop putting them first don't stop taking care of your health yeah, and don't stop exercising and doing the things you need to do. Uh, it's, it's important to, to never uh, have regrets either. Some of us come from some dark backgrounds. Some of us have situations where we grew up in families that we are ashamed of, or we don't want to talk about, or we don't want to be that type of parent, or we don't want to be you know, a union, whatever it is. Um, although they have pensions, uh, we want to do something else. And don't be afraid to take a risk to follow your dreams, especially early. Follow your follow your passions, start the business, do that early before things get harder. Cause probably today is the day when uh, your health is going to be best and you can, you can make those moves. Awesome. That's great advice. It's Michael with a net worth of $700,000. Well on his way to millionaire. Thanks for coming on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for listening to the millionaires unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. 
See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire. 